it's good to be here. Thank you, musicians, for beautiful music that takes us into God's presence. The uh, text today is Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. I'll read it to you. Is it going to be on the screen? Is it, will it be on the screen? Yeah. Well, I actually want the words, not just the text. All right. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Let me just say, as you uh, turn or prepare, it's good to be here. Uh, my name is Dan Doriani, as you perhaps heard. I'm a professor up in Covenant Seminary. If you can't figure out where I'm from, like if you graduate from the Memphis Redbirds, you go up to see me in St. Louis. <laughs> Redbirds and Cardinals. So beyond that, uh, I have a number of, of uh, contacts with you. You've sent a number of people in this church up to Covenant Seminary to be trained, and that's been a joy, and so I'm glad to open God's word to you. This is from the book of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Or it could be translated, Adam did not find a helper. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last, or now at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I do pray that you would uh, speak to us as always by your word. Your word sung, prayed, read, and proclaimed. Meet us according to our needs. May our families be places of your direction, joy, and blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe I'll confess something right away, and that is this, that I am speaking on marriage for the common good because somebody said, I want you to speak on this about eight weeks ago. I'd never really even thought about it. I've always thought about marriage as something for the good of the couple, maybe the good of the couple and their children. But he said, I want you to speak about marriage for the common good. That is the sense in which, the ways in which marriage is good for the world. And I thought, I like that topic. I never would have spoken on that if you hadn't asked me. So that's what we're doing today. I'm, I'm heeding a call. And I want to begin with Martin Luther. This is the year after the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther, as you know, started the Reformation. He was a monk and then a priest, and therefore, as had always been the case for a thousand years, almost always the case is maybe more like it, in the West, he was a single man. But he got married. He got married at the age of 41 in 1523, which was very unusual, almost scandalous. People did not get married at the age of 41. You were considered an old man. Why would you get married at the age of 41? 
especially since Martin Luther lived the great majority of his life under a death sentence. The emperor and the pope had found his teachings to be defective by their lights, and so they said he's a heretic, he hasn't repented. If we get our hands on him, we're going to kill him. Who would want to get married knowing they could easily leave their wife a widow? And if you have children, they could be orphaned and disgraced. Why would you get married? Well, there was a reason. Uh, Not only did Luther proclaimed the gospel. He also said, let's get rid of traditions that aren't found in the Bible, including the tradition that says that pastors, priests, bishops should not marry. Marriage is good for all. And so he preached this, and lots of priests and monks and nuns renounced their vows of celibacy and left their monasteries and their abbeys and went into the world. And a lot of nuns needed to get married, and Luther helped them get married, and one by one he helped them find a suitable mate, but there was a woman named Catherine von Bora who kept on turning down all the proposed mates. Some people suspected that she wanted Luther. Luther seemed oblivious to it, the way it often goes, but eventually, eventually he took her as his wife. People asked, was this out of compassion or kindness? He said, no, I got married to spite the pope. Not the noblest motive for getting married, to be sure. But something good came of this, something of the public good. In fact, lots of priests had gotten married under the table at the side, but they could never talk about it. The marriage between Martin Luther and Catherine von Bora became the first public marriage of a Christian leader and his spouse. And the world found out about it because Martin Luther had very little sense for money, his wife did, and he kept giving away all of his, his books and royalties, and, and she said, you know, we have to have some income here. And, and so they took in boarders, they took in students, and the students would sit at the table, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of them, and write down everything that Luther said about marriage and parenting and all the rest. And so the world got to witness a marriage, a healthy, happy marriage, for the first time in the history of Christendom. It was a marriage that was good for the world. Now, Luther was pretty honest that when he first married Catherine von Bora, he wasn't in love. He respected her, even admired her for her financial sense, as I said, and for her uh, cooking and taking care of him and their children beautifully, clean sheets. He liked all of it very much, although he found certain things rather alarming, like waking up in the middle of the night with his covers ripped off and pigtails in his face. But eventually he learned to love his wife, Catherine von Bora. It was good for them, and it was good for the world. It was for them, and it was for the common good. Now, that's actually implied in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I know I read Genesis 2, but you know the story of Genesis 1 and 2. It actually tells about God's creation two somewhat different ways to perspectives. And in Genesis 1, the perspective um, goes essentially like this. From on high, we read that God created Adam and Eve— Male and female, he created them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so if you just read Genesis 1, you have the impression that Adam and Eve were created simultaneously and were married immediately and had this charge that God gave them of going into the world together and filling it and subduing it. That's their, that's their task, to go into the world. Over in Genesis 2, we learn that maybe there was... Um, little bit of a gap 
And the gap goes like this. Adam was created first and was alone for a while until the woman was taken from his rib. And that's the, that's the entry point to the meditation on the goodness of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. Marriage is good. Our society doesn't always see it that way anymore. You know that. Maybe you know that people don't get married as much as they used to, and you know they don't stay married as much as they used to, although actually the divorce rate's going down a little bit. But if you press into the numbers somewhat, as scholars have done, what you find is that marriage is kind of for people who live in this zip code. There are other zip codes where people don't get married as much. If you didn't finish high school, the chances that you are ever gonna get married just keep going down and down and down. Most likely, you'll just live with somebody for a while and break up and live with somebody else and break up and live with somebody else. And you may end up living with somebody for a long time or not. If you finish college, it's much more likely you'll get married. And if you you have one of those good degrees, maybe a grad degree, the most likely scenario is you'll get married around the age of 28, 29, or 30. After you've got a well-established career and enough money for a nice down payment on a house, it's sort of a capstone to a youth and early adulthood well spent. Our society, in other words, doesn't see that marriage is good for the world. It thinks it's maybe good for some people, but not for others. But we need good marriages. When pastors and theologians talk about marriage, you know, the world kind of ignores us. We go, oh, we've heard the Christian thing. We, we know what you have to say. But if you have a beautiful marriage, the world longs for that. The world cannot help but notice a beautiful marriage in an open home in which people thrive, in which people are received when they're broken and needy and cared for. My wife is with me today, very graciously, I might add. We just kind of drove down. It's not very exciting to drive from St. Louis to Memphis. But she said, I'll come with you, and then we're going to drive back. She came with me. That way we have some, some time together. Over the years, our home changed from one in which we got very nervous when people came until now we sort of have people in our house all the time. We have people who, um, who we call them strays. People don't have anywhere to go for Christmas or Easter or July 4th or whatever the case may be. I'm going to meet some people in a couple days. They're going to come to my house. It'll be the first time I've ever seen them. We had a young man come to our house a number of times. He was about 25, 26 years old. Many times, actually, he came to our house. His name was Elliot. His wife left him for no reason whatsoever. She just decided she didn't want to be married anymore. And so he was a friend of our children and when they would come to town, they would bring Elliot with them because he was pretty depressed. We'll just bring Elliot, and we have a bedroom. He'll stay in our bedroom. And one day, my wife said to Elliot, hey, Elliot, um, if you need a towel, top of the stairs, take a left, first closet on the left, immediately inside the door, again on the left, four shelves up, that's where towels are. And Elliot looked at my wife, I happened to be nearby, and said, you don't know how many times I've been at your house, do you? I know where everything is in your house. And I felt like saying, you know, Elliot, we don't know how many times you've been in our house because there's any number of people have been in our house any number of times. They just kind of come and go. We like you very much, but we really don't know because this house is just kind of open to people. I believe that's what God wants. God wants people to get married. That's the norm. 
Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They were a married couple from the very beginning. He wants people to be married, to get married, and then have children, and, and then the children go forth into the wider world, and if all goes well, those children add something. They bring grace, wisdom, knowledge, truth to the outer world. In fact, the Bible shows that in various places. You know, when, when Jesus needed a friend, where'd he go? He went to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, a family who were his friends and took him and the 12 disciples in. And there's a whole book of the Bible that's largely about taking care of a needy person. Story of Ruth. Boaz opened his home, opened his life to this woman who was only faintly related to him. Now, marriage is supposed to be, first of all, ideally, the main source of companionship. I know a lot of people here are single because in every church there are. And so God gives us friendships and he gives us community, gives us churches, but the main place in which people find companionship is marriage. And then the circle gets a little bit wider if we have the gift of of children and friends and out in the wider world for our work. Matthew 19, Jesus says that God ordained marriage and what God put together, no one should put us under. So marriage is, is intimate and that intimacy leads to love, and it leads to children, and then, and then when children come in, then you can lose track for a while. I'm not against children. I have children, grandchildren. But they can confuse things a little bit. More on that in a minute. So Jen, again, uh, Genesis 1 and 2. So in Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And I'm going to call that the side-by-side or the shoulder-to-shoulder aspect of marriage. We, we march out into the world and we subdue, we rule, we govern, we care for the world for God. That's our, that's our task. It's the task side of marriage. That's Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 focuses more on the relational side, how uh, a man and a woman go to restaurants and look into each other's eyes, and they, they go for walks, and they hold each other's hands. So we don't just fill the earth and subdue it. We're partners in that task. Genesis calls Eve Adam's suitable helper. Now, there's a debate about this. Some people don't like this. A feminists say, well, you know, don't give, it sounds like Women exist to help men. Chauvinists might say that. See, this proves that women exist to help men. Feminists reply, no, it proves that men need help. That's what it proves. <laughs> and neither one of those ideas is the point. And if you look at the Bible, in Genesis, make a helper. The word helper is used more of God to Israel than any other way. The main way the Bible talks about helpers is God is the helper of Israel. God is much stronger than Israel. You have to be strong to help. I have a daughter who teaches math and, uh, you know, got an undergrad degree and takes grad courses for pleasure and things like linear algebra. She goes, Dad, it's so much fun to be taking abstract calculus again. Well, at a certain point, at a certain point, she surpassed me and I couldn't help her anymore with her math, Right? You have to be strong to help. So when it says the woman is the helper, it's saying she is strong, not inferior. You have to be strong to help. But of course, you also have to be willing to help. So the idea is the woman is strong and should be willing. That's the teaching of Genesis 
one and two, especially about women. So again, shoulder to shoulder out to the world and also face to face. The face to face is more prominent in Genesis two. I read it to you. And you noticed that Adam had a task. God gave him the task of naming the animals. God also gave Adam other tasks in Genesis chapter two, uh, tending the garden, caring for the garden, and then the riches of the world are mentioned, rivers and gold and onyx and, and so forth, and so we know that he had a lot to do. And then we read this. We read that God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. If you know the Bible really well, and I've heard this is a teaching church, so I think probably a lot of you do know the Bible well, you know there's a refrain in Genesis 1. The refrain is, as God creates, end of every day, it was good, 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 it was very good. Now in Genesis 2, we read it's not good. You may say, oh, that's because of sin. No, sin enters the world in Genesis 3. So there's something that's not good even before humanity rebelled against God. What is it? Well, we have to wait for a moment. Because God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And then God proceeds to not do that. Instead, he gives man a task, and that is to name the animals. Let me read it to you quickly. And you notice a little bit of emphasis. God created out of the, form, out of the ground the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. And he told the man, he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man named them, that was his name. There's a lot of naming going on. Now, you know that today, if a scientist discovers a new star, he might name it after himself or his wife or maybe his puppy, I suppose. And maybe if somebody discovers a disease, they might name it after their enemy, just for fun. You get to name things. And if you discover a new structure, you try to give it a name that helps people understand what it's all about. Naming is, is a careful activity. And get the idea that Adam was taking his time naming the animals, doing it well, and watching them. And if he was, then he noticed that all the animals come in twos except for him. The dogs are playing and Butterflies are fluttering and the porpoises, maybe you saw porpoises, are splashing and they all have a partner and he does not. So you see, for a while, Adam was alone. Now it's beginning to dawn on him that he is lonely. In fact, it says that Adam did not find a helper suitable for him. And so now he's ready for God to do what God said he would do to make that helper. Parade of animals is done. Adam looks to the Lord, wondering where his helper is. I'm going to read the words of a theologian who happens to be a friend of mine. This is the way he says it. He says, as the last of the beasts plods off with its new name, the man turns away with a trace of perplexity in his eyes. God says, son, I want you to lie down. Now, close your eyes and sleep. A man falls into a deep slumber. The creator goes to work, opening the man's side, removing a rib, closing the wound, building the woman. There she stands, perfectly gorgeous, uniquely suited to the man's need. And he says to her, daughter, I want you to stand over there. I'll come for you in a moment. Then God touches the man and he says, Wake up now, son, I have one last creature for you to name. And he brings Eve to the man. And when 
Adam meets Eve, we have the first recorded human words. Now at last. Now at last. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's going to be called, I'm going to call her woman because she came out of the man. This is the helper. This is the one. This is the cure to my loneliness. This is the one my soul desires. And he rejoices over her. Now it's easy to say this and it's easy to forget this. It's easy to forget it because marriage has, again, these two aspects. We're we're side by side, shoulder to shoulder, going into the world, ruling the earth and subduing it. That's Genesis chapter 1 and end of Genesis 1. And then we have this other side in which we say, now at last, bone of my bones, the the partner I sought, that's the face-to-face. And when you're building your career and you're having your children, it is all too easy to lose sight of the face-to-face. Even if you are, like me, someone who goes around teaching about marriage. So I'm going to tell you a story about that. It's a long time ago, and I am a father of three children under the age of 10. I'm teaching at Covenant Seminary, and I've been rewarded for doing a good job so far by getting an overload and some special lectures, and it's a lot of work this particular semester, I can tell. The semester's young, but it's a lot of work. And then on February 1st, my wife falls ill. She wakes up, throws up, goes back to bed, gets up the next day, sick again, better, worse, better, worse. Six days go by, and finally, we well, better get you the doctor, see what the doctor has to say. Stomach viruses don't usually last six days. He takes, you know, some blood and sends it off to the lab, and the lab loses it, and, and the doctor says, it's probably okay, and then he goes away for a long weekend, and he comes back, and we call, and still no tests, and day 12, she wakes up, throws up, goes back to bed, her eyes seem sunken, I say, I don't care where the doctor is, I don't care where the test results are, we're going to the hospital now. We go to the hospital. And they find the test results, and it's Giardia, and we know what, you know, antibiotic we need to give her, and, and we're gonna get fluids pumping into her veins, and she's remarkably better in three or four hours, and so I leave at noon, and I go home. And I go home where I have uh, all the things I've had to do. And, you know, the dishes have been moldering for days, and the laundry is lying in heaps, and she's sick, and I'm not nearly as efficient at these things as she is. And I've got my extra classes and this extra lecture. And may I also mention that at the same time, my three children, aged nine to two, are all sick seriously sick, and as a lovely gift, they gave it to me, so I'm also sick, and just for good measure, during these same days, the door of our freezer leapt off its hinges onto the floor of our garage. I mean, why would it do that? And why would it do it this week? And then we had electrical problems breaking out of the house, maybe connected to the freezer door jumping off the hinges, I don't know. And so I didn't get back that day. Will you forgive me? You might not forgive me when I tell you that I didn't get back the next day either. And the next day, feeling much better, my beloved calls me up and says, when are you coming in? Now, if anybody here is really sharp, you know what day today is, because I told you she got sick on February 1st, plus 12 days, plus a day, plus a day. So today is Valentine's Day. And the answer when your wife is in the hospital, when are you coming in, is I'm coming in really soon. And so I got in the car as soon as I got the kids taken care of and come in, and it's Valentine's Day, so you go to the florist shop and the hospital, and all the beautiful arrangements are long gone. So I went for big, 
there's this thing with like 14 or 18 enormous yellow blooms about as tall as my head, and I buy that, and I start, well, I couldn't even wait for the elevator, to be honest with you. I went running up the stairs. This is the day before cell phones, and she kind of felt me coming as I opened the door to her hallway, and she just turns and she's peeking out the door and a little bit of tears in her eyes. And she says, oh, those are the most beautiful flowers I've ever seen, which is palpably false, but I knew what she meant. <laughs> she meant bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. We haven't seen each other for two weeks without being sick. And the truth is, for a couple weeks before that, it was just doing and doing and caring and caring. When you have little kids, this is the rule, the likelihood you will execute your Valentine's Day plans are inversely proportional to the grandeur of those plans. So we had something fabulous planned, we did not pull it off, but we had maybe our most memorable Valentine's Day date, holding hands, sipping Sprite, sitting in the hospital corridor, watching people go round and round. Because bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh because we had lost sight of this, because it's easy to lose sight of this, because marriage is for each other and for the world, and we forget it's for each other, and we start serving the world. It's good to serve the world, but first we must take care of each other. Now, Genesis chapter two, verses 24 and 25, which I read a moment ago, state three principles that guide us in this. The first one is this, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother, and the second one is, similar to it, and be united to or hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Those are the big three. So number one, you leave. If you want to be close to your wife, your husband, if you want to be one flesh, now at last, bone of my bones, you have to leave. Leaving in Genesis 2 is above all leaving your parents, which is very simple. It means that the marital relationship trumps the relationship with your parents, you love your spouse more than you love your parents. You serve them, you, you share your spirit, your soul, your thoughts with your spouse more than your parents. And that was very much needed in that culture. Today in our culture, we need it a different way. We need to, I see children in, in here, we love our children, but the best way to love your children is to love your spouse first. It's very tempting to get this wrong when, you know, uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and the babies are little, and they're crying, and often there's tension when babies are born between husband and wife, and the little baby and the little cute ones, you know, 18 months old, and they're just so darling, and then they learn how to smile at you, and they're three years old, and they're so sweet, and they love you, and they depend on you, and give you hugs, and it's easy when things aren't quite right with your spouse to pour your attention into your children. This is easy and deadly. You must love your spouse first. The best way to love your children is to love your wife and tend to your marriage. Show them a good marriage. Give them a lasting home, a loving home of affection and of grace whenever needed. That's first. The second is hold fast or be united. It's translated different ways from one version of the Bible to another. Uh, can even be translated be glued to each other, stick close to each other. Couples become unhappy sometimes, and they think of becoming um, unglued. 
I'm not trying to comment globally on divorce here. I know there are a lot of people who have divorces. I know that a lot of people are divorced against their will. And sometimes circumstances are such that it's the only possible option. I'm not going to go into the theology of that. I'm not, I just want to make it clear I'm not trying to condemn anyone who's been divorced. Nonetheless, it is God's ordinary will that we stick in a marriage, even when it's hard. There was a counselor who worked for many years, he's still counseling, uh, an excellent counselor, who met with 200 couples who were on the cusp of divorce, ready to file papers. They'd, they'd gone to the counselor, they gave up, we're gonna get a divorce. And he said, would you be willing to give it one more try? And if they said, yes, we'll be willing to give it one more try, they, he found that 75% of the people who were ready to file divorce papers and just said, I'll try it one more time. There's enough there. I'm committed enough. I'm going to try it one more time. 75% of those couples made it. And most of those 75% after two years said, we are happier than we have ever been. Because, because they believed there was something worth working for. Now, as believers... It's a counselor who largely worked or mostly worked with believers, but as believers, we understand that when we, stay, when we say, I will stay faithful to my spouse even when I'm ready to give up, that this is a very Christ-like moment because Jesus loves us and forgives us when we are unlovable, unlovely, when we are failing, when we're faltering, we're not keeping our commitments. Jesus still loves us. The Bible does not say Jesus loves us when we are holy and good. The Bible says God loved us when we were sinners, when we were enemies. He loved us not because we're holy, but to make us holy. And when we stick with our spouse, when we hold fast to our spouse, even when they might feel briefly like an enemy, we remember Jesus loved us when we were his enemies. And he didn't break his covenant with us because we were faltering or failing. He loves us with an everlasting love. That is the model of the love of a husband and a wife. Unconditional love, not thinking about other options. This is what God does in his covenants. He makes covenants with Israel. He promises, and Israel says, yes, I'll be in a covenant with you. And then, and then Israel breaks the promises, and so God calls them back to repentance. He doesn't give up. He doesn't sever his relationship with his people, nor should we do so with one another. When the marriage is strong because you have left father and mother, because you love your husband and wife more than you love your kids, when you learn to persevere through the obstacles of life, when the marriage is strong, then it can open up to the world. Internal strength allows us to move out. It's what, honestly, I'm not trying to brag, but my wife and I have a, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good, pretty good marriage. And because it's pretty good and pretty strong, we can afford to bring people into our house not worried that it's going to throw things upside down. Now, I, I mentioned that I have children. I also have grandchildren, and my grandchildren live near me. I have a granddaughter, four and a half. She's delightful. A grandson, he's one and a half. He is also delightful. And they come to our house a lot. They come for long periods of time. They arrive at 7 in the morning and leave at 4.30 in the afternoon because my, wife, my, our, my wife's daughter, my daughter, you know, works there long hours nearby, and we keep them two days a week, and so they're at our house. And then sometimes they're at our house other times because they like Nana and Papa, and uh, sometimes they're at our house because, you know, there's a water leak, and one time we had, and now is when I need you, 
Um, one time, they were at our house six days in a row. Just right there, you're good, thank you. And I barely know you, but he said yes, he would be willing to hold my hand. And, and what's your name again? Jonathan. Jonathan is me, Jonathan is Dan, and I am a four and a half year old girl, and my name is Estelle. I am your granddaughter. And so, um, I know it doesn't look like that, but that's the way it is. And so she's at our house six days in a row, and there are rules at our house for our grandkids, and one of the rules is Papa works at home sometimes, and when the, when the door to his study is closed, you don't come in. But if you're there six days, there's a lot of playing, a lot of time to get a lot of bonding, and so the door is closed, but it's, it's a little, it was irresistible. And so she walked into my office. She's not a highly tactile, hugging kind of child, but she, she walked into my office and held out her hands, and she looked me in the eye and said, Papa, can you spend some time with me? Now the answer, when you add a little smile, the right kind of a smile and blonde curly hair is yes. And what would you like to do? Can we listen to some music together? What would you like to listen to? I'd like to listen to the lime and the coconut with the gorillas. Now, The Lime and the Coconut is a Harry Nielsen song from the 70s, and he once dressed up in a gorilla outfit and played it in a different version, and somehow that's one of our favorites. And so it's like, you know, I know you can't resist Lime and the Coconut with gorillas, so we're going to do that, and we're going to listen to another, and we listen to, and, and then 15 minutes go by, and I say, now I'm talking, now you're Estelle. Okay. Um, I said, well, honey, I need to get to work now. And she said, well, Papa... Thank you, perfect. <laughs> he volunteered really fast. It's <laughs> a dangerous thing to take the first volunteer. So, um, Papa, what are you doing? And I said, well, honey, I'm writing a book. And she said, you're writing a book? I said, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I do some of the time. You write books? said, yes, I mean, here's one of my books. She can read a little bit, you know. She know my name is Dan. She can read D-A-N. Dan, yeah, that's me. Wow. Does Nana know this? <laughs> I mean, the logic is clear. I mean, something this important has been unknown to me. Maybe other people don't know. And of the people who need to know, clearly Nana should know that you write books. And so I said, playing along and also trying to get alone again so I could work on my book, I don't know if she knows. Why don't you go tell her? <laughs> And so then she runs downstairs. Thank you very much. You're done. <laughs> she runs downstairs, and I hear a little of it, and I get a full report later on. You know, man, can you believe it? Papa writes books. Yes, I knew that. What do you think he writes about? He writes about the Lord. I said, yes, that's right. She said, yes, that's right. Fifteen minutes later, she comes running upstairs. Well, Papa, that took longer than I expected. <laughs> Nana used a lot of words, and I used a lot of words, but I'm back. Well, this isn't the most important thing that ever happened in my life, but by golly, it's sweet, and these sweet things happen, like my granddaughter interrupting, like Elliot knowing where everything in my house is, because we have an open home. And we have an open home because... We've been knitted together because we've figured out pretty much the shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder for the world and the face-to-face -face for each other. And so we're strong enough, not perfect, but strong enough 
that we can bring people into our family. And I hope that that's something you aspire to as well. Not because your marriage is great or really strong, but because God has touched you, he's loved you, you've failed, you've faltered, and, and you haven't given up because you know that God doesn't give up on you. And you know that God's way is your way. And if God perseveres with you, you should persevere with others. You have that. You have that in your bones. You have that in your spirit. And because you have it in your spirit, you, you're clinging to each other and, and you're holding fast to each other and you're carving out a life. And, and God, as you pray, God is giving you enough strength that you can open your home to the world. And I pray that that would be true for you in this church. I know there are a lot of single people. You who are married, I hope your, your homes are open to the single people. I hope your homes are open to the single people in the church, in your neighborhood, at work, your family, even the family members that might be a little bit tough because we're most like God when we're living that way. God brings children into the world, us. He creates life, and, and we can create life, and, and God welcomes people into his presence, and we can welcome people into our presence, into our family, into our circle of love, just as Christ has done for you, so with each other. And again, I pray that that would be so for you, and that you would receive the fullness, the peace, direction, and blessing that God has for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would have marriages touched by your love and by your grace, marriages that are um, knit together by your love, that are forgiving because you forgive, marriages that are therefore strong enough, not perfect, nothing is in this life, strong enough to offer your direction, your peace, your blessing to this world. Strengthen your children for this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.